Hello, everybody. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we uh, complete the Old Testament this evening, we are very thankful for the tremendous witness that you have given us in the Old Testament. You've given us information that makes it possible for us to understand the New Testament more fully. We give you thanks also for this little book of Malachi, which formed the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It tells us about the Elijah to come, John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner for Jesus Christ. We thank you for this. We commit this Bible study now to your hands. We ask that you will be with us and bless us in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So tonight we're going to be talking about Malachi, the last of the books of the Old Testament in the way that it's organized in our Bibles. It's not the last of the books of the Old Testament in the in the Jewish reckoning because they they what they the Pentateuch first, the Torah, and then the prophets, and then the writings. So the last book in the Old Testament according to the Jewish reckoning is first and second chronicles. But anyway, in the, in the order that you're familiar with, Malachi is the last book of the Bible, the last of the minor prophets, because he's the last of the minor prophets time-wise, chronologically. And the, the study is called Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness. And no, that is not a typo. It's not S-O-N son, it's S-U-N son in the book of Malachi. The name Malachi simply means my messenger. That is Malachi was the messenger of the Lord. Some scholars do not think that Malachi was actually a, a proper name. They think it was just a title. Uh, I don't think that is the case because none of the other prophetic books are written anonymously. We are always given the, the name of the prophet. And we don't, we're not told anything else about Malachi. We're not told anything about uh, his background, where he came from, or who his father was. But there are three other prophets, and that is also the case. So simply the, the fact that we're not given any background information doesn't mean that it's not a name. I think Malachi really was a person by that name. Next we go to flight, the characteristics of the book. Those of you who have not been with us from the beginning of this series may be wondering what in the world does flight stand for? Well, flight, F-L-I-G-H-T, is an acronym that we use in this class, which stands for facts, Landmarks, itinerary, gospel, history, and travel tips. The facts are who wrote the book and when it was written. The landmarks are basically what the book is about. The itinerary is the outline of the book. Gospel is how the book relates to the gospel message. History is where the book fits in history. And travel tips are the implications and applications. What the, 
how we can apply the book in our lives and what lessons we can learn from the book. So the facts, Malachi is the author of this book. We're told that as we are in all the, all the prophetic books right up front. The Bible is silent regarding his family and background. Scholars generally believe that he, along with Zechariah, was part of what is called the Great Synagogue, a group of priests and leaders who collected and preserved the canon of revealed scripture for us. Malachi prophesied during the time of Nehemiah. We know this because he mentioned that the temple in Jerusalem had been completed, that the sacrifices were being made, and that a Persian governor was ruling the Jews. The word that's used for governor in, in the opening chapter of Malachi is that Persian word for governor. Uh, Malachi may have authored this book sometime between 433 and 430 BC. Sometime around there, it may have been as late as 420 BC. The landmarks, the book of Nehemiah closes out the Old Testament historically, but Malachi closes it prophetically. He wrote about 100 years after the temple had been completed and the system of sacrifices had been reinstituted. And his book serves as a prelude to the 400 years of prophetic silence between the Old and New Testaments. Malachi picked up where Ezra and Nehemiah left off, rebuking the priests for neglecting their duties to the Lord, being careless in their worship, and returning to former ungodly practices. The book ends by predicting the coming of the Lord and John the Baptist. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The itinerary, the outline of the book, First, we read about religious decline, 1, 1 through 2, 9. Then we read about social debasement, chapter 2, verse 10 through 16. Moral defection, chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 6. The material dissipation, chapter 3, verse 7 through 18. And then finally, the messianic declaration in the fourth chapter the final chapter of Malachi. Malachi's mysterious identity illustrates an important point. And I say mysterious because once again, um, we're not given any background information about Malachi, who he was, where he lived, who his, what his uh, ancestry was. But it illustrates an important point. The messenger is not necessarily as important as the message. This is highlighted in Malachi's unique prophecy about a messenger who would clear the path for the coming Messiah. And of course, that's true for us too, that the message that we have for the world is so much more important than we as individuals are. Sometimes we get all antsy, all, all uh, nervous about sharing the gospel, but as has been pointed out many times to us that we're just the, the postman, we're just the one who's delivering the message. The um, results, the response to the message is not up to us. 
We are just responsible for delivering it. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. We know that John the Baptist was my messenger, but imagine reading this 400 years before John arrived on the scene. All you would know is, was that someone named Malachi, a messenger, was predicting that someone called my messenger would come and proclaim another messenger, the messenger of the covenant. And that messenger would turn out to be the long-awaited Messiah. The lesser unnamed messengers in this passage simply serve to point to the ultimate messenger, Jesus Christ. Christ is presented in the book of Malachi as the messenger of the covenant in chapter 3, the refiner's fire also in chapter 3, and the son of righteousness. And once again, that is son, S-U-N, rather than son, S-O-N. Malachi wrote his book at a time when the Jews had been free from Babylonian captivity for some time. When the Jews first came back from captivity, from Babylonian captivity, uh, there was much excitement, much anticipation. The temple was going to be rebuilt, a return to the land, and so they were expecting the Messiah to come very soon. Of course, that didn't happen for four or five centuries later. And of course, we are still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment, Christ, the Messiah's second coming. So the Jews, Jewish people had been freed from Babylonian captivity for some time. And many of the problems Ezra and Nehemiah faced with the Jewish people were also problems Messiah, Malachi tackled problems Malachi tackled, marriage messes, tithing troubles, and social sins. The very th same things that Ezra and Nehemiah dealt with, the people had backslidden in once again. These were problems in Jewish society. The problems that Malachi faced, the same problems that Nehemiah faced. First, there was the problem of mixed marriages. Divorce was a problem, but it wasn't just divorce. It was the fact that uh, men were divorcing their Israelite spouses so that they could marry foreign wives who practiced idolatry. So it was not only a divorce problem, it was also a mixed marriage problem. Then there was the failure to tithe. And with each of these, you can see that first I give you the references in Malachi and then we give you the references in, in Nehemiah where he had to deal with the same things. There was no concern to keep the Sabbath. That is something that both Malachi and Nehemiah dealt with. Then there were the corrupt priests. Then there were the social problems. Notably the neglect of the poor, but there were other social problems as well. Uh, the, the people were practicing sorcery, 
they were committing adultery. So both Malachi and Nehemiah had to deal with social problems. In the history, where the book fits in history, Xerxes of Persia was the reigning king, but other than collecting taxes, he left the Jews to themselves. Now, Xerxes wasn't actually the king at the time that Malachi was writing, but just before that, he was the king. At the time that Malachi was writing, his son Artaxerxes was the king. Malachi's heart cry was for the people to repent of their sins and return to true worship and faithfulness to God. The book of Malachi was the last prophetic word before the period of 400 years of so-called silence from God, which was broken by the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the writings of the New Testament. In biblical history, those 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments are known as the intertestamental period. And I will spend some time uh, next week talking about this intertestamental period because even though this isn't a book of the Bible, I think it's important to understand some of the things that were happening during this intertestamental, intertestamental period and how it shaped what we see in the New Testament. Uh, there are some developments that took place in, in this intertestamental period that aren't found in the Old Testament. So it's important to understand how they came about as we read the New Testament. This is a, a chart showing you the rulers and prophets of Malachi's time. I told you that Xerxes was the king just before this. Uh, his son Artaxerxes was ruling at the time that Malachi was writing. Malachi was conducting his prophetic ministry. And Malachi overlaps with Nehemiah. Uh, you will notice that with Malachi, it says 435 question mark to 415 question mark. So we're not exactly certain when Malachi was prophesying, but it was sometime around then. Um, Nehemiah was the governor in Jerusalem just before Malachi began his prophetic ministry. But Nehemiah later returned to Babylon. So I, I, that's why I think that Malachi did his writing shortly after Nehemiah returned to Babylon, which was around 433 BC. So sometime after 433 BC, Malachi did his writing and the reason I think that is because when Nehemiah was governor, he dealt with the, the problems and corrected them. But Malachi had to deal with them again. So that's why I think that Malachi did his prophetic ministry after Nehemiah had returned to Babylon. Artaxerxes was the son of Xerxes. And Xerxes, you'll recall, is the believed to be the king who married Esther. So that gives you an idea where we are in history. 
what can we learn from the book? What are the, the travel tips, the implications and applications? First of all, God wants his people to give generously. The only time in scripture God told his people to test him was when it had to do with tithes and offerings. He challenged them to see whether he would bless them abundantly if they honored him with their tithes. Give because of all that he has given you and give from a cheerful heart. We see that in 2 Corinthians 9. You cannot give God, but you can dishonor him by not giving. God wants his people to act like his people. It's through his grace alone that you're saved. But once you are saved, you need to respond to his grace. What, re what you do reflects who you are and whose you are. We're called to grow in certain characteristics. You're familiar with Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit and in faithfulness to God. The Lord is looking for people who worship him in spirit and truth. The theological aspect of Malachi's message. At the heart of Malachi's message to Israel stands the covenant. Three covenants, three, are specifically mentioned. The covenant with Levi, then the priestly covenant, the covenant of the fathers, the covenant of marriage, Malachi announces to Israel that God's love toward them is founded on the covenant and his judgments are based on their violations of these covenant relationships. The covenant of Levi is evoked in order to point out that the priests were not living up to their responsibilities before the Lord. The disputation against the priests uses the language of the priestly blessing in Numbers 6 in order to curse the priests for their sins. You're, you're probably familiar with the, the priestly blessing from Numbers 6. That is the, the one about uh, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and so forth. Though no covenant between God and the Levitical priests is recorded in the Pentateuch, that might come as a surprise to you, but, but it's, it's not recorded, this covenant in Scripture that, that God made with the Levitical priests. But this must refer to the Lord's choice of the Levites, especially Aaron, to serve him in a priestly role. A formal covenant with the Levites is also referred to in Jeremiah 33, and in Nehemiah 13. So apparently there was a covenant that God made with the Levites on this occasion, even though it's not recorded in scripture. It is difficult to determine whether the covenant with the fathers, that's the second of the covenants, is a reference to the patriarchal or the Sinai covenant. The patriarchal covenant, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the Sinai, Mount Sinai covenant that God made with Israel. But in, in any case, it lends power to the accusation that the people have broken covenant with the Lord. 
Malachite cites the marriage covenant because the Israelites were apparently divorcing their native-born wives to take up with foreign wives who worship idols. This act too indicated the direction of the Israelites' heart during the period of Malachi's ministry. So they, they were violating all, of, all three of these covenants. The covenant with the priests, the covenant with the fathers, and the marriage covenant. There are six disputes that make up the bulk of the book of Malachi. And all of these six disputes follow the same pattern. The Lord begins by asserting a truth about his nature to the people. The people are then provoked to question the Lord. The Lord then responds to the challenge with an answer. So each of these six disputes follow this same pattern. The first dispute, chapter one, verses two through five, is a dispute about God's love for Israel. God says plainly, I have loved you, and he has loved Israel. The question of the people is, how have you loved us? So then God gives a concrete example to demonstrate, to illustrate how he has loved them by destroying the nation of Edom, the offspring of Esau. Edom had been a particularly annoying adversary to Israel. And we can read more about that if we read the Minor Prophet of Obadiah and read all about how God was to destroy the nation of Edom. The second dispute, chapter one, verse six through chapter two, verse nine, is a dispute about how, about the contempt the priests show God. So quite a, quite a section of Malachi is devoted to this dispute. God is father and master, deserving of honor. That's the premise. And then the question is, how have we defiled you? How have they not honored God? And the answer is, you have placed defiled food on my altar. They were bringing sacrifices that were not the, their best. They were bringing sacrifices that were blind and lame and deformed, contrary to what God had established in his Torah, in the Pentateuch. The third dispute Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, is the dispute about Israel's covenant breaking. God is the father and creator of all. That's the premise, that's the assertion. And the question is, how do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? And the answer, by divorcing the wife of your youth. And I explained earlier how not only were they divorcing the wife of their youth, but they were doing it so that they could 
take up with foreign wives who were practicing idolatry. The fourth dispute in chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5, is a dispute about God's justice. The Lord is weary of the words of his people. The question is, how have we wearied him? What have the people done to weary the Lord? The answer is by accusing God of honoring or ignoring evil. Some were actually saying that God blessed or favored the wicked. Others were saying, well, he just ignores it. He just, he just um, gives it a wink. He uh, gives, a, a, gives it a blind eye and allows the, the wicked to go about their business. That is how they word God, by accusing God of not being just. The fifth dispute is a dispute concerning repentance. That's chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. God does not change, but you must. God is immutable. God does not change, but he expects, expects his people to change. And the question is, how are we to return? How do we do that? And the answer is by not robbing God of the tithe. The sixth dispute, the final dispute that is covered is the dispute about harsh words against the Lord. The Lord accuses the people of harsh words. The question that they ask in response is, what have we said against you? And the answer is, you have said serving God is pointless. We don't get anything out of serving God, so why should we do it? When we look at the disputes that God had with the people who had returned from Babylonian exile, we see three, six, excuse me, six theological statements. Statements about the nature of God and the nature of his relationship with his people. First of all, God loves his people. Secondly, God is Israel's father and master. God is Israel's father and creator. God is the God of justice. God does not change. God is immutable. And finally, God is honest. God is not deceitful. When we go through those 
sections in the book that I gave you in the itinerary, the outline of the book. The first was religious decline. Malachi begins with a revelation of God's love to Israel, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, and a rebuke to the priests, chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 9. They were despising his name and polluting his altar by using sickly sacrifices rather than using the best animals as God demanded. Using vivid and repulsive imagery, the Lord warned that he would smear the refuse of the sacrificial animals on the priest's faces and then carry them to a place outside the sanctuary where such refuge, refuse was burned. So you can hardly think of a more vivid and repulsive imagery, imagery than that. In contrast to the disobedient priests of Malachi's time, who had violated the Levitical covenant, the early Levites had taken their priestly responsibilities seriously and given the Lord's people moral guidance. That was the responsibility of the priest, not only to conduct the tabernacle or temple worship, but also to give moral guidance to the people. The second section is social debasement. Socially, the tide was as low as it was spiritually. Idolatry was present, chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. Despite the lesson learned in Babylon, they had gone into captivity because of their idolatrous ways. Even though they had learned their lesson, they had returned. Through, the, through those idolatrous ways. Divorce was practiced. Even though it's written, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And once again, they were practicing divorce so that they could marry non-Israelite wives. The next is, the next section is moral defection. The justice of God was questioned by the people. Where is the God of justice? They cried. But the judgment of God is coming, replied the Lord. They would find out what the justice of God was all about. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Notice that I have put my messenger in blue, and I put the Lord and the messenger of the covenant in red. There's a reason why I do that. The prediction that he would come to his temple means that there had to be a temple for him to come to. Jesus came to the temple that Zerubbabel had rebuilt and Herod the Great expanded and supplemented and which was raised by the Romans in AD 70. All of that with Malachi's prediction. Now get back to the my messenger versus the messenger of the covenant. 
At first, one might think that my messenger and the messenger of the covenant refer to the same individual, but the parallel structure indicates otherwise. They are two distinctly, two, two distinctly different individuals. My messenger is the forerunner. So there's my messenger and then there's the messenger of the covenant, two different individuals. Rather, the titles the Lord, Hebrew Ha'adon, and the messenger of the covenant refer to the same individual. In what sense is the Lord a messenger of the covenant? What exactly does that title connote? The title depicts the Lord as the one who enforces the covenant by blessing the godly and punishing the wicked. So there are two different messengers here. There's my messenger, the forerunner, and then there's the messenger of the covenant. Then we read about the next section, material dissipation. Because they had not tithed as God commanded, they were robbing from God. Furthermore, the resistance of the people was stout and arrogant. But the reply of the Lord was clear. He would remember the righteous in the day of judgment, sparing them as a father spares his children. But the people who were disobedient and arrogant would be punished. And then the last section of Malachi is about Messianic Declaration. Malachi did not just warn Israel to repent in the present because of past sins. He also presented a vision of hope for their future. Malachi ministered in a time of disillusionment. I told you how that initial excitement about the rebuilding of the temple and the return to the land and the possibility of the Messiah coming soon that had worn off. The people had backslidden. So Malachi is writing at a time of about 100 years after the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the second temple, the post-exilic temple. And about 100 years after uh, Zechariah and Haggai had problems, had begun their prophetic ministries. So it was a time of great disillusionment, a time of, of, what, of people who were in despair, who, who were kind of indifferent, lackadaisical. They didn't really care about the prophecies of, of, of glorious future because they didn't think they would ever be fulfilled. Previous prophets presented a picture of restored Israel as a time of glory and power. But now a significant amount of time had passed, and they still, they still live under foreign overlordship. Even though they were no longer in Babylonian captivity, they were still under the Persian Empire. And there were more empires to come. They still would not be freed from foreign domination for a long time. First there would be the Greeks, the Greek Empire. Then there would be the Roman Empire. There was a, a brief respite at the time of the Maccabees, when they became independent for a brief time, 
but still they returned to Roman rule after that. Malachi intended to rekindle this future hope of something more glorious. Yes, a day was coming, a day that would see God intervene in the affairs of men and women, bringing victory to those who obey God and judgment to those who do not. Many times uh, Bob and Eric have talked about the, the meal, the meal that separates. It's good news. It brings joy to those who obey God, but it brings judgment upon those who do not. The condemnation of the wicked will be accomplished with the coming of the Messiah. For behold, the day comes, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stumbled. But this day will be a consolation for the righteous. For therein the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And the wings that are in view here are not wings as in the wings of a bird for flying, but rather the, the border, the extremities, the edges. And this prophecy about the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings will ultimately be fulfilled, of course, when, when the Lord returns and sets up his millennial kingdom. But when we get to the Gospels, I'll show you an exciting way in which this prophecy was partially fulfilled during the ministry of Christ about the Son of Righteousness arising with healing in his wings. I'll show you how that was partially fulfilled in, in the Gospels and the ministry of Christ when he was here on this earth as a man. The book ends with a command to obey the law and a prediction about the coming of Elijah in preparation for the Lord. And we read about that in the Gospels. About this coming Elijah, Elijah to come. The Gospel of Mark opens with a quotation. So we can see how this forms a bridge, how the last chapter of Malachi leads into the New Testament, to the Gospels. The Gospel of Mark opens with a quotation that combines Malachi 3.1 with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That's from Malachi. And then from Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. In the final verses of the book, of Malachi. This messenger is further identified with Elijah. Elijah will precede the Lord on the day of victory and judgment. 
In the New Testament, the messenger who prepares the way is John, John the Baptist, who brings the kind of stern message of coming destruction as described in Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Remember that um, John the Baptist referred to his, uh, his Pharisee, Pharisee uh, antagonists as a brood of vipers. So he was the kind of prophet who was bringing this kind of stern message, coming destruction for those who refused to obey God. He, John the Baptist, this, this, this Elijah to come, proceeds and introduces Jesus' earthly ministry. And it is Jesus himself who identifies John, John the Baptist, as Elijah, whose heralding role is anticipated in Malachi. We read about that both in Matthew chapter 11 and Luke chapter 7. When Jesus referred to John the Baptist as Elijah who is to come, he didn't mean that John was some sort of reincarnation of Elijah but that John was a prophet in the tradition and style of Elijah. Powerful, no-nonsense spiritual heir. As the angel told John's father, Zacharias, before John was even born, that John would also go before him, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Angel quoted Malachi 4.6 to verify the spiritual message. Spiritual lineage. That John, John the Baptist was in that spiritual lineage of the prophet Elijah. Who had lived, the real Elijah, had lived centuries before Malachi. And now we're, we're four centuries later when we come to John the Baptist and Jesus. While talking with Peter and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, according to Matthew 17, Jesus confirmed that John was Elijah's spiritual successor. Jesus implicitly identifies himself with the coming Lord of the Malachi passage. One messenger would point the way, the other messenger, the messenger of the covenant, would be the way. In short, eschatological hopes in the book of Malachi find their fulfillment in the Gospels. Finally, notice that the final word of the Old Testament is curse. Malachi 4 6 talks about how, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Shortly after Genesis opens up, we find a garden in which the curse is introduced. And according to Malachi, the curse was still in operation. But the New Testament ends with a blessing. With John recording a future in which there shall be no more curse. The curse which has plagued mankind from shortly after creation will be no more. 
the curse will be finally removed once and for all. The Old Testament closes unfilled. All sorts of predictions and prophecies, pregnant with promise, but with a message of hope. God loved his people and would deliver them once and for all. The curse still lingered, but the cure was on the way. That uh, concludes our study of the book of Malachi. Uh, one thing that I wanted to mention about uh, last time, I discussed the prophet Zechariah, and I talked about Armageddon, but that was a place where the armies were gathered, and they and they proceeded the ark to proceed down to Jerusalem. One thing that I didn't point out that perhaps I should have. Um, is that when God says in Scripture that I will gather all nations against Jerusalem, he doesn't mean every last single man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. He's talking about the armies of the nations, the militaries of the nations. They will be gathered against Jerusalem. The vast, vast majority of the peoples of the nations will be home in their nations at this time. But the armies, the, the militaries of the nations will come against Jerusalem, will be gathered against Jerusalem. So I just wanted to point that out. Does anyone have any questions or comments about the book of Malachi that we discussed this evening? Um, give me one minute to go through the unmuting process, okay? All right. All right, so I've um, allowed everyone to um, unmute themselves if they would like to ask a question. Not quite sure what happens if multiple people do it at once, but we can go ahead and give it a try. You should be able to see a mute and a video um, command on your command bar. I guess you uh, can't see it, but I'm, I'm uh, wearing my Red Sea parting tie. Today is the last day of unleavened bread. And according to Jewish tradition, this was the day on which uh, God parted the Red Sea. And the, Israel, the Israelites went through dry, dry shod through the Red Sea. Dana, can you hear me? This is Tom. This is Tom, right. Um, when it, was the temple rebuilt during the, the time of Nehemiah? Well, well, actually, uh, the time of Ezra is before that. Okay. So Ezra uh, went back to, to Israel, to Jerusalem, 
because they had begun rebuilding the temple in uh, 536 BC, I believe was the date. But then a couple of years into it, uh, it was allowed to just sit idle. They, they stopped rebuilding. And, and Ezra had to go back to encourage them to, to finish the work of building the temple. So it was finally finished uh, in 516 BC. And that was a big part of the work of, uh, of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Also was encouraging the people to get back to work, finish the temple. Okay. Yeah, the reason I asked. Well, uh, the Ezra w was um, involved in encouraging people to finish building the temple. Nehemiah was involved with uh, encouraging people to build the finish building the walls of Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah. All right. That that, that makes sense. Yep. Thank you. Dana, would you explain the spelling of the the S U N versus it, what? Well, what I would have thought would have been spelled S O N. Well, um, I, I didn't. Uh, I don't understand. Did you did you mute yourself again? <laughs> yeah, I was I was using my left hand, so I got a little out of control there but yeah if you could spell the, if you could shine some light on uh, why that was spelled s-u-n that's a good pun shine some light on it yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh-oh my left hand is muting again um. <laughs> um. barb and reba keep his left hand away from the computer <laughs> uh, Barb is left-handed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um. The the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Well, when when Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom. It's going to be a new day. It's going to be a new beginning. And so it's really quite fitting that that a sunrise pictures that, that glorious day. Um, I guess I think more about the wings part of the prophecy. <laughs> That's the part of the prophecy that's exciting to me, and, and I'll explain that more fully when we get into the Gospels. But arise with healing in his wings. That's the part that I find so exciting. But the sun part is just the fact that, that, that Jesus is the day star. He's, the, he's a new beginning that he will bring about when he establishes millennial kingdom on this earth. And there will be a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity. And it talks about the prophecies, talk about the, about righteousness, uh, covering the earth as the, the knowledge of the Lord, covering the earth 
as the waters covered the seas. Thank you, Dana. Who else do we have on here? Dana, can you hear me? And this is who? It's Beth. Beth uh, Harmon? Yeah, and you know, uh, Malachi 4.1, that verse reads, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. And then verse 2, but... You know, this is going on about the, the son of righteousness. So it's it's a contrast, isn't it, between uh, the wicked burning up and but Christ is going to be our 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 warm son, our healing son, and he's not going to burn us. Yeah. Am I off the in thinking that? No, that's that's a very good observation okay um, so, so it's kind of a, a contrast between yeah the, the heat of the ovens and the warmth of the yeah. sun sun or the for the wicked the incorrigible the unrepentant it will be a, a time of weeping and gnashing of teeth but uh, it, it's just, being burnt up <laughs> yeah, it's just like uh, fire in general. It can be a a very pleasant thing, or it can be a very destructive thing, depending on on how the fire is used. It can be something very beneficial, or it can be something very, very harmful, very destructive. And the light that. Jesus Christ brings into the world will certainly be uh, good for those who follow him and not so good for those who don't. Hey, Dana. There's a Nancy. Which Nancy are we talking to? This is Nancy Fleetcheck. Okay. You know, it, kind of, it took me to Luke. Uh, Luke 1, 79, it says, or pardon me, 78, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from, all high, from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What was that reference again? That was uh, Luke 1, 78 and 79. Thank you.
Are there any other questions? Go, go to um, unmute yourself if you'd like to ask anything or comment. There's an arm connection. Doesn't look like there's any other uh, questions or comments. Peter's saying he has a question, so. Peter has a question. Yes, you have to unmute yourself, Peter. We're in two different rooms in our house. <laughs> oh, two different rooms and two different computers, huh? Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> He's trying to figure out how to unmute himself. There you go. Am I unmuted? I showed Tom and Marilyn on. Yes, they are here. Yeah, we're, we're giving you first here. Go ahead, Peter. Well, I, I have a, a question about Zachariah, but I wanted to wait till you guys were done with Malachi. Okay, well, why don't you just go ahead and talk about Zechariah? Okay, I was looking at Zechariah 9, 13 through... 15, can you share something about the Maccabeans and what happened? Well, uh, we'll, we'll talk, I'll talk about that more uh, next time when, we're talk, when we talk about the intertestamental period, but I can certainly talk briefly about the, the Maccabees. What, did you have any questions or you just need to well, I was trying to reconcile verses 13 through 15 in chapter 9. Reconcile it with what? Well, just the meaning of it. Oh. Zechariah 13 through 15. Well, which chapter are you in? 9. Oh, 9. But what was your question regarding the Maccabees? Well, I the annotations refer to it in those verses. Okay. And I just I didn't understand thirteen through fifteen very well. Well, you know that the Maccabees arose at the time when uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom, when he died, his kingdom was split into four parts. Okay. And the two main parts, as far as the Bible is concerned, are the Ptolemies down in Egypt 
and then the other group that was of um, Syria. Um, and, and Israel, the land of Israel, was caught right in the middle. So those, those two powers were vying for control one over the other. And sometimes Israel would be under the group down in Egypt, and other times the uh, would be under the control of the, the, the party of, of in Syria. And finally, the the Maccabees arose when, when Israel, the Jewish people had just had enough because are you familiar at all with Antiochus Epiphanes? I've heard the name. Well, he was the, the ruler of Syria. And when he got control over Israel, he was a very ruthless ruler. He forbade them from practicing their religion. He, he burned a pig on the altar in Jerusalem at, at the temple mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and desecrated it. And so finally the, the Jewish people under the Maccabees rose up and threw off the, the, the power of, of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so for a, for a time, Israel was independent. Were the Maccabeans uh, Jews or Israelis yes. or? They were, they were Jewish. They were. Yes. And that's why it says in that passage that you referred to in Zechariah, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, because Antiochus Epiphanes was one was one of the one of the heirs of this kingdom that was left by Alexander the Great, one of the four sections. The name finally comes to me, the Seleucids of Syria. So the, the Seleucids in Syria and the Ptolemies in Egypt were lying for power. Okay. And this was during this time of the Maccabees, the the Seleucids were, were dominant. They were in control of Israel. Yep. And, and Tychus Epiphanes was, was one of those rulers from the line of the Seleucids. And so I think it is significant that, that it says, and I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Yeah, who does the O Greece represent there? Well, as I mentioned, when Alexander the Great died, and he died very yeah. young in his 30s, his empire was divided among four of his generals. Yep. And the two that we are most concerned with in Bible history are the Ptolemies in Egypt and yep. the Lucids in Syria. Yep. And they were they were Greek. Okay. So so it's significant that it says your sons O Greece. Okay. And there was something else that uh, well, see, it's in verse 13 of, of uh, chapter 9, it says, For I will bend Judah my, as my bow. Well, the Maccabees would have been descendants of Judah. Okay. So the, there is talking, all, this passage is talking about their military accomplishments and that they're rising up against uh, the sons of Greece. Okay. Which is very good. A prophetic description of what's what's going to happen with the Maccabees. 
Sí. Now, as we will see next week when, we, when I talk about this intertestamental period, finally, uh, Herod the Great, who was an Edomite, mm -hmm. he wasn't Jewish, he was an Edomite, he was a descendant of Esau. But he wanted to legitimize his rulership by intermarrying with the Maccabee lion. So his wife was a descendant of the Maccabees. Mm. But of course, he, he um, ultimately had her executed as he did a couple of his sons. Uh, one of the one of the humorous remarks from ancient history. The Roman emperor said, uh, I believe it was Caesar Augustus, but one of the Roman emperors said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod's what? I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Okay. Because Herod followed the kosher meat laws, so he wouldn't kill a pig, but he would kill his son. So. That's why the uh, Roman emperor joked, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Got it. <laughs> okay, well, Tom, I'll pass the torch back if you have another question. Uh, not a question, but a grateful comment. I appreciate the work that you've done, Christy, in organizing this. And uh, I miss the privilege of being together face to face with all of you, but this is a good second to be able to do it this way. And it's gone off pretty well this evening. And I thank you, Dana, for your preparation and presentation. It's, uh, it's been a joy to be with you. Thank you. Um, one, one other thing that I didn't mention that maybe I should have was that the, the fact that God is immutable, that he doesn't change. It's certainly due that he doesn't change regarding anything, but specifically what, what is being talked about in Malachi is that he doesn't change as far as his covenant promises. When he promises that he will do something, he will be faithful to his covenant promises. So he doesn't change regarding anything, but, but specifically what, what's being talked about here in Malachi is how, how faithful he is to his covenant promises. Well, that faithfulness is certainly key at, to all of us at this time which is a very changing time, but to uh, know and acknowledge that we have an immutable, unchanging, faithful, sovereign God, it's precious that we are privileged to, to know him personally and uh, experience him in all this. Thank you. Amen. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that always strikes me about God's promises to Israel because the those who believe in replacement theology would say that um, all of the promises that God made to Israel are null and void. They don't, uh, he doesn't have to fulfill those promises. He's not going to fulfill those promises. But if that is the case, that God can just arbitrarily decide that he's not going to fulfill his promises to Israel 
if that were true, then we couldn't be sure that he would fulfill his promises to us either. But he will fulfill his promises to Israel and he will definitely fulfill his promises to us. He's a, an unchanging God who remains faithful to his promises. Anybody else have any comments or questions? time. Good night. Hey. Dana, are you on again next week? I am. Okay. Next week I'll be covering that intertestamental period, so we'll, we'll be talking more about, about the Maccabees. And, and things that, that arose within uh, Jewish culture in that intertestamental period. One example is the synagogue. You don't read about synagogues in the Old Testament, and yet we read a lot about them in the Gospels. Yeah. So where did they come from? How did that happen? You have the synagogue arising. Well, that arose in that intertestamental period during the time that the that the Jews didn't have a temple. But Paul, when he evangelized, he went to the synagogues in many places, right? Yes, because one of the things that, um, you, you know who Ken Ham is? I've again heard the name, but. Well, he, he's a, he has a ministry called Answers in Genesis. Mm -hmm. He's the one that's responsible for the ark that they have uh, yep. in Kentucky. And he, yeah, the, the Creation Museum and, and the ark. Yep. Well, he has talked about how It's much easier to evangelize people if they first have some understanding of what the Bible is about. Mm -hmm. It's very it's very difficult to evangelize people who have no clue of anything about the Bible. And that that was the experience of the Apostle Paul, that when he went to the synagogues. Not only were there Jewish people attending synagogue, but there were God-fearers, Gentiles, mm -hmm. who hadn't converted to Judaism, but who did attend the services, the services at the synagogue. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the most fruitful field for evangelism for the Apostle Paul. People who had some understanding of what was happening in the Old Testament. I mean, if you think about it, when you, if you say to a person who has absolutely no knowledge or understanding whatsoever of, of the scriptures, 
and you say that you say to them Jesus died as a sacrifice for your sins well what's a sacrifice what sin you see what I mean what I'm getting at I mean you you have to explain to them so much more if they don't have a basic understanding of scripture so even even if, there's a, there's been a debate about whether this was ever a, a Christian nation. Well, it wasn't a Christian nation in the sense that every single person, or even the vast majority, were genuine Christians. But it was there was a time when even people who were not Christians had a general knowledge and understanding of of the Bible, what the Bible was about, of, of the general storyline of the Bible. You're referring to the United States now, right? Yes. Okay. But what I'm getting at is that as people have become more and more in our society have become more and more biblically ignorant. Yeah. You have to do more and more uh, educating before you can even get them to, to understand what the gospel is all about. Mm-hmm. 